Hey guys, and welcome to Overtly Casual, the podcast brought to you by myself, Dak, and my brother, Tyler. Uh, today we're going to do the fourth volume of Two Guys, One Closet, appropriately named, because there's two bigger dudes now in my tiny closet. Uh, I'm here with Lane, who, if you're a follower of the podcast and of my Twitter, uh, you know that Lane has been in the military for over a decade, right? Twelve years. Yeah, so we're looking at... Uh, 12 years in the military, multiple deployments, and today the real uh, objective for me is to pick his brain on what got him here, and then we're going to talk about some uh, some fan questions, some listener questions, and Twitter questions, um, and we'll shout those guys out. So without further ado, guys, uh, give a hand to Lane. What's up, man? Hey, man. Uh, so I'm Lane. Uh, I've been in the Air Force 12 years, like I said. I'm an E6 technical sergeant, uh, testing for Master E7 the second time. Um, I should find out here in a couple months if I got promoted. Um, my job in the Air Force is aviation resource management. Uh, I have to admit, it's uh, it's not a passion of mine to be an aviation resource manager, but uh, I've, I've gotten fairly good at it, confident in the job and the duties and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in that time, I've supervised more than a handful of individuals across different spectrums of ability, skills, knowledge, you know, trajectory, trajectories, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And let me first start with uh, I'm going to do a little bit of dick riding. Um, Lane is truly uh, one of the I can name two other uh, non-commissioned officers who I look up to and who I look at. So. The, every micro interaction we've ever had, every every interaction we've ever had has either been one not negative, which you know in That's today's huge. climate is yeah. a big thing, yeah. and two absolutely beneficial. Every time we speak, I, I gain something, I learn something, whether it's about one of my troops, uh, about myself, about you, but I walk away from it with something, which is a big reason why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, and also to further attest to uh, the gentleman that Lane is, he brought a a generous gift with him to the podcast in the form of a twelve year Glen Livet, a nice Scotch, which is you know, it's one of the best Scotches I've had. Admittedly, I haven't had that many Scotch, uh, but the last man to gift me a twelve year Glen Livet was uh, a guy named uh, Roberto Alfieri, who's now he's still in the military. Uh, he's like four hours south of us, but a really good friend of mine. So just a testament to the gentleman that he is and also the leader uh, that Lane is. And and now that I've kissed your ass a good bit, <laughs> uh, what, what brought you, like what got you, you know, 12 years later as you reflect, when did you join, at what point in your life, and what, basically what made you want to lead? Because that's what you do so effectively now. Yeah. Well, um, so my family history completely ties to the military. My dad was Army, my brother was a Marine, my grandfather was in uh, Navy, retired. Um, I have aunts and uncles that have all been in some various aspects in the military. So when I was a kid, probably around middle school time frame, I kind of realized that that was the path that I was going to go on. It was just coming down to what branch I was going to join. Um, for me, college was never an option. I wasn't st a stellar student in school. I, would, I was the kind of kid that would figure out okay, I have uh, this amount of points right now in my class. If I get 16 more points, I get a C and I'm done. 
Um, and, and that's kind of what got me through high school. Um, I was born in South Florida. Uh, I moved to North Georgia uh, about junior year, uh, sorry, sophomore year, and uh, graduated out of North Georgia, smaller town. Um, so I ended up picking the Air Force because my dad was Army and he said, don't join the Army. My brother was a Marine. He said, don't join the Marines. Uh, so I came down to Navy or uh, Air Force and every interaction I've had with Navy and no offense to any Navy listeners, but they're, they're different is the, is the political way of saying <laughs> it. Uh, both, of us, both of us having spent time in Africa at various Navy bases, uh, you can, you can kind of relate to that experience there. So I feel like I made a good choice joining the Air Force, kind of was still the military path that my family holds, but it was my own path, the Air Force path. Mm -hmm. Uh, I joined in 2006. Let me rephrase. I technically signed the papers and joined the Air Force in the 2006. I didn't effectively put my heart into the Air Force until around 2010. Um, so I spent a good four years floundering around in the Air Force, not really sure, hating my job, not wanting to learn it, being difficult on supervisors, um, kind of the airman that you don't really want to supervise. Were you a, a four-year enlistee or a six? I was a six. Um, so I, I joined in 2010 and still had two years to kind of write my course to be able to re-enlist because mm -hmm. the way I was going, I wasn't going to be even allowed to re-enlist. Shit. Yeah, it was real bad. Uh, actually, the turning point for me was around the time I was offered an Article 15, uh, and we can get into that story. That's a real good one, um, where I kind of realized, oh, uh, you know, I better figure this kind of Air Force thing out because I don't really have anywhere else to go. Yeah. So, yeah. So what? What was the defining? Like, what was the? Uh, so you spent four years being a shithead. Yeah. <laughs> Effectively, four years being a shithead. What? What changed? for you was it a supervisor was it a personal life experience near-death experience whatever what was it it was a culmination of a bunch of factors actually um and, and like most big life-changing decisions and, and stuff like that happened um one it was maturity and a lot of things that airmen have that i've experienced when they become new in the air force is a maturity issue and that's just a natural human thing it's very rare that you get that 18 year old that's super mature ready to be adult and that kind of stuff uh, so I grew up a little bit. Um, a lot of where I grew up was Balad, Iraq. Um, Balad was also known as Mortaritaville. We got mortared about 10 times a day during the time that I was there. Um, so, so that kind of not really near-death experience, but that kind of realization that I'm, I'm not invincible helped. Mm -hmm. um, I got back from Iraq and I met my wife, Holly. Um, obviously a girlfriend at the time when we first met, started dating and all that kind of stuff. And I realized have somebody that I kind of care more about. It's not just about me and need to figure out how to support her, uh, help her and all that kind of stuff and be more mature for her. Um, and on top of it, a supervisor, uh, Jen McIntosh, who really went out of her way to realize that my issues were a maturity issue and not just, I just want to show up and be a asshat for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Uh, so she would point out things that I was doing that was, just kind of ass hattery, you know, and say, Hey, dummy, fix yourself. Uh, the best story I can tell you about her, cause I think the, the viewers would appreciate this is, uh, um, the best example that I have is when, uh, I thought I was very intelligent when I was, when I was a young airman, I thought I knew everything and I thought I knew how to get out of it or situation. So what I would do, one of the many things I thought I was getting away with was, uh, I would pay one month of truck insurance 
and get the little card that says your insurance is good from April till October or however many six months is, right? And then I would stop paying it. But I had a little card that said, I have insurance till October. I'm not paying it anymore, but the card says I have insurance, right? <laughs> um, and I was going through the gate one morning, and the, the gate does random inspections where they want to see your driver's license, your ID, your insurance, pull you over, check out everything in the truck and all that kind of stuff. And when I got through the gate, the cop got the cop says, uh, "Hey, uh, I need all your information here." And confidently, I handed my insurance card. Like, here's my insurance. This is like June, by the mm-hmm. way, right? I haven't paid insurance in a couple months, but my card says I'm good. Yeah. And uh, they go through everything. They run my background, make sure I don't have any warrants. Check my insurance. And the cop says, "Hey, you, this is coming back saying you don't have insurance." Very confidently, I say back to him because I'm obviously smarter than everybody in the room. Yeah. I tell him, <laughs> "No, my card says I have insurance," and he's like, "Well." Um, Texas doesn't think you have insurance, so I can't let you drive on base. Okay, well, you're you're a jerk, and I'm just going to park over here and call my supervisor. So I called Jen McIntosh. Uh, she's a uh, E6 at the time. She's now an E7, sadly retiring later this year. But um, I call her, and I say, hey, uh, they're saying I don't have insurance. I have my car that has insurance, this, that, and the other. I don't know what. They're not letting me on base. And she's very calmly says, okay, cool. I'll come get you. No worries. We'll get it all sorted out. She picks me up, we get in the car, we go through the gate, wave them, hey, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. We get through the gate, and at Dias, this is at Dias, by the way, you have um, the gate, and then about 100 yards is a traffic light. And we get through the gate, she rolls up the window, and she looks at me and goes, so tell me, you have insurance? Well, yeah, see, my card clearly says I have insurance. Still confident holding to this story. And uh, she says, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you one more time. <laughs> no harm here. Do you have insurance? And I went into this. Well, you know, the way my bank account is set up. (laughs) She's like, okay, I see where this is going. And you're not the smartest guy in the room. Not that I'd ever told her that for some reason I had had this confidence that I was. She says, I want to see that you have insurance by the end of the day. And this will go away. Not a problem. Immaturity thing happens, right? Um, So we get back and I figure out how to get some money together and, you know, pay for insurance. And I keep paying for insurance. Um... And she tells the story to people like it was the funniest thing ever. Like, you wouldn't believe this idiot thought he was the only one that ever tried this and <laughs> thought he would get away with it, right? Almost as if she had tried it or she had seen it before or whatever, you know? So anyway, back to your point, because I kind of diverged a little bit, is that it was a culmination of a bunch of different things. Supervision being huge and helping me grow up. Deploying, obviously, as a young guy. I was 20 when I went on that deployment to Iraq. That was my second deployment, the last uh, and then meeting meeting a, a wife, you know, so a significant other that really makes you want to strive to be better, for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. So do you like when you joined? Because you joined pretty much a few years after nine eleven. Yeah, five years. So as soon as you could, though, right? Yeah. As soon as you could after nine eleven. So you knew what you were joining into. It's the heat of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, you know, not necessarily dead in Afghanistan, but it's heated in Afghanistan. So you know that's two definite deployments you go on. And then you have countless other ones, auxiliary deployments, you know. Um, so you joined knowing what you were going to do. Do you think any of your rebellion was because of the image that you had of the Air Force and leaders in the Air Force? So say you joined thinking that, Everyone stood tall, and they were intelligent, and they were just going to get after it. And then you get there, and you're like, fuck, this isn't anything like I expected. Um, so it was def- some of the rebellion was a lot of 
this isn't what I expected kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had the over-romanticized view of the military. Yeah. Everybody was a war hero. Mm-hmm. Everybody was, you know, dug in the trenches and charging yeah. the hills and all that kind of stuff. The kind of thing that our American culture as a whole over-romanticizes significantly, right? Yeah. So, uh, and, and what leadership is and all those kind of things. So when I got to into the Air Force, I, I joined trying to be TACP. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went through the super special basic training version of TAG-P where you don't really do marching. You you wake up, you do PT, and you go to your TAG-P class, and you do all that kind of stuff. And then you come back, and you you know learn basic Air Force stuff. And every time anybody else, any other regular flight was marching, we were out running or swimming or getting dropped off somewhere and running back or whatever it was. Uh, and then we had extra medical appointments. So I thought I was joining a combat focused Mm. career field well um, I'm colorblind ever so slightly but enough at the time to where it was a disqualifier from TAG-P so uh, I joined the Air Force wanting to be a combat airman some kind of special ops you know sitting looking through a sniper scope for years for whatever reason that's what I envisioned yeah and uh, I was forced cross-trained into a job that I didn't select aviation resource management Mm. Uh, I had no idea what the job was when I arrived at tech school uh, I got there and they're talking about random personnelist codes and, you know, inputting and auditing and all that kind of stuff that's pe- heavily paperwork driven. And then uh, I go from there to a uh, special uh, operational support squadron, HARM, which is a host aviation resource management where they deal with flight records. Mm-hmm. And flight records, basically, for those that don't know, is, is just a chronological history of air crew members careers straight up flying stuff Mm -hmm. but it's as honestly as as boring as you can imagine Mm -hmm. sitting in a cubicle in an office looking at uh olive green folders with people's histories that you're never going to meet and you have no idea who they are Mm -hmm. but you come from i I came in wanting to do the battlefield airman kind of stuff and i'm sitting there reviewing records of all the people doing the cool stuff yeah so there was a significant amount of you know disgruntled you know why am I here? I'm not doing what I wanted to do kind of stuff. Yeah, and that is that is what I am lucky to have grown into via leaders like you, leaders uh, like the other two guys. It's legitimately two other dudes uh, that led me to this mentality. Like that is the hardest thing to do is to, to take a guy who thought everyone was going to be like you. Everyone was going to be like Jan. Everyone was going to be like I hope I am, right? Everyone's going to be gung-ho. They're going to be fit. They're going to get after it. Everyone's going to be a warrior, yeah. right? Uh, regardless of the position they fill, right? The pro- professional arms, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> and that is the hardest thing is taking someone who has been let down at every single level. Uh, so I applaud uh, Jan on not only serving 20 years for a country, but doing so in a very difficult time where... You're balancing deployments, leading guys, and not just leading guys, leading guys that everyone that joins thinks they're going to kill people. Mm-hmm. They're going to jump out of planes. They're going to get after it. I mean, it's the reason I came to Can. I volunteered to come here uh, to Clovis, New Mexico. And the listeners know I live here. Uh, but I volunteered to come here because some jacked chief, uh, Chief Scanlon, he's retired yeah, now. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Chief Scanlon that drove this huge Hummer, he came down to uh, the base that I was at previously for training and he I was the distinguished graduate of the class and he's like dude 
you need to come to Cannon, and you need to go to this specific squadron, the one we're at now. Mm-hmm. He's like, dude, Ranger's going to jump out, going to secure the airfield, you're going to jump out next, you're going to do your job, blah, 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 blah. So he pitched me this whole yeah. this whole thing, and it was exactly what the recruiter gave me, yeah. you know? And so as a dude who joined at 18 as well and was let down yeah. at every step of the way because every NCO I had outside of uh, you and the other two were just overall letdowns. Mm-hmm. And now leading guys as a non-commissioned officer – getting them out of that rut and giving them the Jocko style speeches. Um, and it, I've had, uh, various, uh, folks on this podcast already from different career fields. Uh, one being services. Um, uh, I know that people give airman leadership school a super bad rap, but I think it was the best thing that ever happened in my air force mm-hmm. uh, career because I got to get out of this operations world and see the guys that were maybe in supply and hated it. Yeah. And then it gave me an opportunity to inspire them and say, hey, man, no, here's why nothing happens without you. Here's why nothing happens with without the guys that are willing to, as tedious and boring as it, as it feels, right? And I'm sure you learned this along the way. We don't go anywhere without you guys. Yeah. Without the arms guys, without SARM, right? Without SARM, we go nowhere. Nothing we do matters because I, you know, if you if you're not checking up with your SARM, or you know, if you're not QCing your stuff with those guys, you lose hundreds of hours. Mm-hmm. That's just how it works. Because mm-hmm. if if SARM does it correctly and then harm does it incorrectly, you lose hundreds of hours and yeah. it affects your career. So, yeah, like really hammering home that profession of arms, really hammering home that regardless of the career field you fill. Um, if you are the best at what you do, you will succeed. Yeah. Right? It's the mentality of, uh, I feel like you may share this. If I'm scrubbing toilets, I want to be the best toilet scrubber that we have. Yeah. So uh, I had a philosophical moment with NCOA. So Air Force PME, in my opinion, gets a bad rap. Uh, I will say that your experience in ALS or NCOA, it may vary depending on person to person. Uh, it depends on what you get out of it. One of the best lessons I got out of uh, NCOA, and this is exactly along your point of what you're talking about, be the best of what you're doing. So I went to NCOA about two months after my son was born. So I had a newborn, I wasn't getting any sleep, and I got told, hey, you're, you're going from, I was stationed at Lake Heath, hey, you're going to Germany for six weeks. Oh, what? I get to stay in a hotel? And you know, honestly, there was a little bit about me that was like, to go explore Germany. I mean, I'm going to miss my kid and all, but all he does is cry, cry and not sleep, you know? So I get there and I'm super tired. And, uh, the first day we're going around introducing our, ourselves and, you know, Hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Sergeant Lane Medlock. I'm, you know, from Lake and Heath. I'm excited to be here, but more importantly, there's a coffee pot sitting behind me. Can I get that started? Because that would just be amazing because I was running on caffeine and tired all the time. Right. And, uh, so the instructor says, hey, yeah, cool, but I know what your job's going to be because at ALS or NCOA or senior NCOA, everybody has a rando additional duty, you know, honor guard monitor, homework monitor, whatever, whatever. So my job was Snacko running the coffee machine. Nice. And I was sitting there making coffee every day, and I thought, you know what? I don't love this job, but I'm going to make this the best coffee, snack, whatever, whatever we can possibly have in this facility and it sure was it was that we had cookies we had everything every morning so anyway but that's when i had the philosophical moment this is something i need as a new dad that you go through that like what am i going to teach my son well how am i going to raise my son and i'm two months in right so i'm obviously going through that and i thought 
this is this is something I need to remind my son. It doesn't matter if you're a um, janitor at a place, you know, a major league baseball player, a violinist, or a dude making coffee coffee at Starbucks. Be the best whatever it is that you are in your current capacity. Yeah, ninety percent is showing up, and that's something that. Um, so I have I have a bone to pick with not Air Force PME professional military education for those of you listening that haven't been in the military um, I don't have a bone to pick with PME itself I have a bone to pick with how people treat PME yeah it is brushed off mm-hmm. by guys that have been in for two decades mm-hmm. and it's brushed off and they're giving you like so I'm a huge fan of Jocko Willink do you follow Jocko at all mm-hmm. So oh, you told me about his podcast. I haven't listened to it. I've been listening man. to yours too much. I haven't had time to yeah. listen to it. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. So Jocko Willink is a uh, – he spent 10 years, I believe, uh, enlisted with the SEAL teams, and then he spent 10 years as an officer with the SEAL teams. And everything that he preaches uh, – he led task unit bruiser in Iraq. Uh, he uh, led TRADET, the training detachment, uh, I think on the West Coast, yeah, he was on the West Coast. He was a Team One guy, but so this guy, he knows, like he's been there, done that. He's got like fucking twelve deployments, combat deployments mm-hmm. too. Like every every day he goes out, he doesn't know if he's coming back. Um, and everything he preaches, it's exactly, it is word for word in some cases exactly what Air Force PME teaches. Well, yeah, and PME isn't just pulling it out of a hat. You know, that stuff is heavily researched. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's extremely good information that people just brush off as Maslow's hierarchy of needs is one of my favorites. And people just see that as like a goofy pyramid. Like, why do I care about somebody's... Because the top one is self-actualization, right? Mm-hmm. And to most people, that's like, what is that, like third-eye Buddhist stuff? Like, I don't... <laughs> self-actualization but if you actually understand what the term is understanding where what your ideal picture of your best life is when it's put into those terms it's like oh yeah my best life yeah I can figure out what that looks like for me you know and why do I care about all these baseline feelings or whatever but anyway Maslow's hierarchy of needs is one example of many in PME that people just hear and they're like this is stupid I'm never I don't need to know this at all Jahari's window. Jahari's window. Yeah. Jahari's window is mine because being a like a being a dude that my standard is always higher than the people that that are supervisor yeah. supervising me, right? Like my standard is leaps and bounds above anyone else's standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be fitness, whether it be uh, work performance, in my brain, even if it's not in my brain, it's always higher, mm-hmm. right? And so Jahari's window just learning the concepts what what air force pme did for me is it took my understanding myself and understanding others like i would before i went to air force pme and before i started studying leadership so so intently right and i I hope i'll continue to do it for the rest of my life even after i leave the military Mm -hmm. here in about a month um what it did for me is it took the moments where i was like man that guy like whether it be an officer enlisted Whatever, where I looked at guys and I said, that guy's just a fucking idiot, right? And that's what I would do, and I'm sure you did as a young guy. Like, yeah. man, that dude's just fucking worthless. Fuck that guy. It it allowed me to go from fuck that guy to, man, that guy really micromanages me. And here's how I can get the leg up. I can satisfy that dude's needs. And I'm teaching this to to my guys currently 
as I'm as I get out. Some dudes, when they tell you when you're wearing your flight suit jacket and it's zipped down past the name tag, some dudes that come around and like, hey man, you know, you know, according to blah blah blah, yeah. this document, you need to have it at this point. Some dudes, all you need to do to win to win them over, to satisfy them, and to get all of their respect, and to have, really, it's kind of manipulative, uh, to have, like, a manipulative power over them, is say, thank you, sir, and zip it up to where it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's it. And so, that's what Air Force PMA gave me. It was the tools to not only recognize why I thought someone was an idiot, but to figure out how to handle them, and work cohesively with them, and CRM, crew resource management, that's huge in what we do. Not only in what I do, but what you do as well. And, and, and you've seen it in multiple deployments. You've seen that if one one cog in that machine is jacked up, if if it's uh, the the flyers or if it's the ground guys or if it's SARM or if it's anybody in that unit or that supports that unit is jacked up, it completely affects the entire unit. Absolutely. So figuring out how to grease that squeaky wheel misusing like the term of the squeaky wheel gets the grease right but if you figure out how to grease that squeaky wheel and win the dude that you think is a douchebag over via simple things Mm -hmm. zipping your jacket up cutting your hair on time right yeah I keep a good haircut not because I want to have you know short hair but because it's going to give me way more capital yeah with, with these guys so Air Force PME it's a carbon copy of combat leadership um, are you familiar with uh, Army Manual? I think it's ten twenty two. Uh, uh, no, your father was he a Vietnam guy or no? He no, was he was after Vietnam to early eighties. Okay, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so him being an Army guy, he may know uh, Army. It may be a manual or a pamphlet. Regardless, mm-hmm. um, in the in the manual, and this is something else that uh, uh, the Air Force PMA gave me. It talked about in this. Now, mind you, this manual was written in the fifties. I think it was five to eight years after the end of World War Two. World War Two, where tens of millions of people were killed. Um, all the combat colonels, the guys that had seen the action. These dudes, they deployed. We deployed for four months. Right. Right. These dudes deployed for two, three, four years. Yeah. Right, so you have all these colonels and all these sergeant majors that get together and they say, "We need to give lessons learned to the guys that come after us." And in Army Pamphlet 1022, it addresses two types of leadership. Uh, one is the persuasive type, mm-hmm. and the other type is the barking, the yelling, the uh, you know, the guy, the typical way that military. It's the MTI leadership, right? right? Uh, which is good for a certain. A certain period of time, usually six to eight weeks, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the branch you serve in, six to twelve weeks, right? That's when it's effective. Yeah. Um, so the, those two types of leadership, persuasive and barking, were addressed in this manual written by combat colonels and combat sergeant majors. Uh, as a leader, which type do you think? Which type of leadership do you think was addressed more in that pamphlet? Um, I would guess that they address the second type not the barking you know six to eight week kind of short-term leadership certainly it was the second time more long-term stuff the barking um was addressed once in the entire pamphlet yeah in the entire book one time and jocko covers this as well 
Um, once in the entire book, it says uh, this manual is meant to develop persuasive leaders. Barking leaders have no place. They are ineffective and inefficient. Mm -hmm. To harken back to Air Force PME, uh, barking leaders are ineffective and inefficient and are not leaders. Yeah. Right. And so that's that's something that Air Force PME taught me is that it's not all about. Uh, it, it gave me the uh, so it gave me the ability to recognize that the only times I'm going to yell at guys, the only times I'm going to scream at dudes is one, if they are about what they're doing is about to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Two, what they're doing is about to kill someone else. Or three, they're so far away they just can't hear me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's exactly what Jocko talks about. So Air Force, that's my bone to pick with how Air Force PME is received. Because if a dude comes out of Air Force PME, or any PME for that matter, because uh, we have the distinct uh, privilege to attend all services PME, mm-hmm. um, we, I have a bone to pick with the guys that you know, the E7s, E8s, E9s even, um, that that say, oh, yeah, oh, Levito, blah, 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 oh, you kissed ass, didn't you? It's like, man, I got a bone to pick with you because now I know just how shitty you are. Yeah. You took nothing from it. So it, it makes me happy to hear that, you know, having the leadership of Jan uh, and the leadership of your wife, that's what a lot of people don't understand, is having a having a significant other in your corner that so what my wife does is uh, anytime a deployment or uh, you know we get alerted or or I gotta go do some shit uh, training TDYs whatever she goes okay babe just go do man shit like, <laughs> you know make me proud having that in your corner yeah. versus the individual that's maybe not as receptive like and not not like so you're 12 years in now you're filling a leadership billet. You're you're getting into these roles that maybe require less deployments, um, so maybe your wife is like, hey, maybe you should you know slow down, focus on this, that, and the other. But the 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 bad version of that is, oh God, you're leaving me again. Yeah, yeah. make you feel blah. guilty and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's not helpful and that's not a healthy relationship. Yeah, I'm so thankful for my wife. Me too. Uh, I think my wife sees more in me than I do on a very regular basis. She sees my, um, any kind of ability or any kind of, you know, future that I have. She sees more, like, more potential in me. That's the word I was looking for than I do. Um, I see myself as a guy that, you know, make master eventually and retire at 20 years. She's like, no, you, you, you could probably make chief. So, uh, we were actually having a conversation yesterday about, yeah, I can't wait till 20 and I can be retired. She's like, you're not getting out of 20. What do you mean I'm not getting out of 20? I don't want to move around. She's like, no, you're, you're good for the Air Force. You're going to be okay. You're going to stick around. You know what I mean? So she's driving me, you know, it's a significant support out of that. You know, not the negative bringing me down on why do you have to go on this deployment again? You know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and that that is something they are, uh, I think they get a bad rep. I know I give them a lot of shit, uh, dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, I give them a lot of shit because my wife, she's a veteran. Um, and I look at, you know, maybe how my wife treats me and she understands, you know, she was an intelligence analyst, uh, with, with the air force special operations command. And so she gets it. I give them a lot of shit when it's like, uh, you know, maybe they don't understand. Well, why do you need to go on these deployments? It's like, 
yo, you don't understand the stuff we're doing, yada, 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 yada. So, uh, but they are truly, when we, when we praise them too much, I'm like, oh, well, you know, they're not the unsung heroes, but truly they are the unsung mm-hmm. heroes. They're exactly what keep us going. I can tell you right now, if my wife was not willing to, uh, put forth the effort and the resiliency mm-hmm. to stick beside me through, um, I know right before my uh, we my wife got pregnant, I'd gotten back on Christmas Eve from a deployment, and I came back and it was like nothing. It was like it was like, hey, sweetie, like how are you? Like give me the hug, cry a little bit, yeah. And it, we just went back to our normal life. Yeah. Um, other guys, I've heard their experiences, and it's you know two, three, six months of adjustment back to it, mm-hmm. and it's. That sounds, that sounds rough. I couldn't imagine it yeah. to be treated like an outcast. And mm-hmm. so the wives that do it right and they don't seek that. Um, my, my favorite thing is the wives that are like not posting on Facebook to the spouse's pages, but posting on Facebook for their hometowns. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. They're like, my husband is deployed <laughs> and he is at war. And it's like, come on, man. Like, first off, one, you're opening your OPSEC. Okay. Yeah, right. And two, Okay, you're just gonna make me judge your husband right now. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but to to get back on track, um, so you have these these rev, like these revelations, if you will. Uh, you have the the solid leaders um, that transform you from the shithead airman that we all are into uh, the leader you are today. What was the transition period for you like like your first opportunity from growing from the shithead guy to now you're leading shitheads right <laughs> what was your what was your aha moment as a leader because we all uh, I have my own personal stories but what what were yours where you were like shit I messed up with that dude you know what I mean yeah um, what was what was that like when you, your first fuck ups your first successes what was that oh uh, that's a this is a great question um, so I'll start with saying that there are there were a lot of learning curves and a lot of mistakes I messed up as a supervisor a lot I went from being a shithead that didn't really care as an airman to now I'm um, I'm still a shithead but I care right it wasn't like oh now I'm suddenly this rock star NCO or anything like that right I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, to the point that uh, when I first put on staff, I had gotten promoted faster because I, I will say that I'm kind of blessed with the ability to take tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of got me through high school. Uh, I don't have to put in a ton of work to get a pretty good grade on a test. And our promotion system is clearly test-based on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you can test well, you're going to do okay. So even with being a shithead and getting a um, three EPR, I still got promoted to staff. Right, just out of testing out of it. And I out-tested three of my peers who are senior airmen, graduated from ALS, and now three of my peers are my airmen, just like that. And they knew me as the shithead. They knew me as, like, the guy that had no idea what he was doing, right? So I, uh, I made a turnaround to try and figure out this Air Force thing, you know. There was certainly some kind of, like, oh, staff is going right to his head. Look at this guy. Maybe there was some of that. Maybe, you know, I don't know. But there was some of it, more of it was, um, I need to figure this thing out for various other reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I barely passed ALS. Um, I failed both tests. Uh, I had to get remedial training. I still graduated. Um, I learned some good, interesting facts, that the, you know, and I didn't think it was a waste of time. It was just difficult because 
I wasn't really into it kind of yeah. thing. I was, but I wasn't. Does it make sense? Uh, anyway, uh, one of the airmen I had um, was a couple years later at Lake and Heath. Um, she was the airman in charge kind of thing because there was no NCO there. And I showed up and I had like this kind of a bigger head. I knew what I was doing. I had just come from Korea where I was a squadron superintendent as a staff sergeant, you know. So my order of I made it and I fucked up are kind of reversed. And I'll get to that story in a second. Mm -hmm. So uh, I get to Lake and Heath and uh, I have an airman that's in charge. She's kind of corrected everything. Everything is kind of working to the best of her knowledge of what she thinks it should look like. And I get in there and day one, hey, nice to meet you. This is wrong. That's wrong. We need to fix this. We need to go over this. And I want to review this stuff, right? So instant first impression is like, what is the deal with this guy? He just shows up and he wants to correct all of my issue, all the things that I have going right. And, you know, it's a terrible, like, introduction kind of thing. And I learned that now. Uh, and the rest of our interaction for the next year was kind of based off of that. Um, I will say that, uh, in my opinion, leadership management of any variety is a 51-49% relationship. The leader-supervisor has more tools and they own 51% of the relationship. So if a relationship is bad with a subordinate of some variety, I tend to look at the leader and say, what are you doing here? Why aren't you figuring out and adapting to the airman? The airman still owns 41% of that relationship and allowing the person that's in charge to have the authority to be there. But the airman, you know, the NCO is the one that's, they're the adult in the situation. More better, there's not a better way to say it, but that's what it is. So anyway, in that relationship, I didn't have the 51% rule and I was failing that person. She needed to adapt to me. I was the NCO and everything she's doing is wrong and she doesn't know what she's talking about and it was terrible, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a, that was a significant learning curve. In Korea, the year before that, uh, I became the squadron SEL uh, as a staff sergeant. We had a master sergeant that got um, emergency leave back home and wasn't coming back. And the squadron commander said, you're the guy. We're going to Alaska. Let's go. So we went from Korea to Alaska for three months. And I was in charge of, granted, I was in charge of about seven people, you know, AFE, Intel, and my guys. Um, and I was like, I've made it. I figured it out. They see something in me. I'm managing people. I know what's going on. I'm trying to figure out how to write bullets to take care of them. Because at a very early age, I had a um, early age of an NCO. I had a um, natural desire to take care of people. I don't know where that came from. It just came out of nowhere of this like, I need to figure out what they need and figure out how to get them taken care of. I have no idea how to write bullets, but I'm going to write bullets. I have no idea how to write metals, but I'm going to write metals, right? Mm -hmm. So that came real fast. And in, in Korea, they saw that, that I was trying to do all that for all of my people, and I was fair. It wasn't just SARM winning, if, if whoever had the greater package, you know, and I tried to set them up for success, and I learned a lot of that kind of stuff there. Um, tried to do the same thing at Lake and Heath, it failed terribly. Um, supervising your friends was a significant thing to overcome because I knew them already. Um, and we weren't friends anymore. We were to an extent, but at the same time we weren't because I wasn't allowed to be with them, thanks to Jen McIntosh. Um, she drew the line in the sand and said, this is the deal. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew them, so it was easier to take care of them. Maybe that's where that came from. Um, I still have failures. I still have um, things that, uh, a more recent guy that just separated from the Air Force a couple months ago, I did everything I could to try and figure out that guy, to figure out how to make him the most successful human, whether he's civilian or airman, 
uh, I could. And I still walk away thinking, all right, I had a personal relationship with that guy, as in we could communicate more than other supervisors in the past have been able to, but I still have a mental failure of he didn't continue with his career the way he wanted to, mm-hmm. and he's a civilian early than he, earlier than he intended, based off of personal life decisions mm-hmm. of some variety. Um, but at the same time, I own the 51% share, so there's still that personal failure on my end that I, I'll take with me. It's fine. I've learned from it, you know. Um, other successes that I still have, you know, I, the failures outweigh the successes in my mind. I see a success and think, hey, I did good on that one, but I still have 10 other ones that I have to figure out, yeah. you know. So I tend to overfocus on the failures. You're speaking of extreme ownership. That is Jocko Willink. Oh, really? Yeah. His first book uh, that he wrote with Leif Babin was called Extreme Ownership. And uh, that's that's exactly what you're talking about. And this is what I brought up with leaders, uh, not only in my past, but in my current unit, uh, in our current unit. I've, I've brought this up of if we're failing a guy, if a guy's doing terrible through a training program, what are his instructors doing? Mm-hmm. You know, how has he been set up? We get these guys knowing that they're not up to par with the standard that we set. Mm-hmm. Because we came through that same pipeline. We mm-hmm. showed up to this base and we're like, fuck, we got to forget everything. We have to relearn it and it's going to take some hard work. Um, that 51, I've, I've never heard the 51% versus 49. Uh, it, it enables you to always take extreme ownership. Mm-hmm. Because if, if your subordinate also sees that they own 51%, Right, and they still respect customs, courtesies, and letter of the law. Right, and then they also own it. And then mm-hmm. if they jack up, well, it's it's their fault. And if they jack up, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. And then it goes further up the chain. Like, what is your boss doing? You know, and not to a micromanagement level, but to a a a unit uh, a unit culture level. What's going wrong that's influencing this exact failure? Absolutely. Um, we, we can't let guys get lost in the numbers. Absolutely. We have to understand that these decisions that are made at the top level have second, third, and mm-hmm. fourth order effects, even deeper than that. <coughs> Excuse me. Even deeper than that, they have these effects that we don't understand. But if we whittle away at it, right, we try to understand it, we can get to why so-and-so ended their career at such a maybe maybe personal low or a unit low um and and that to give you another pat on the back for this podcast is and and just in life is that individual that left held you as the only leader they've ever had um i didn't know that but yeah yeah had a close relationship with him and he um was a hard guy to lead because he had been failed at every corner. Mm-hmm. At every turn, he was getting... Guys were no longer giving him the ability to, to, to take responsibility for his actions, to fail, and to come back stronger. Mm-hmm. They were just like, okay, you failed, and now we expect you to continue to fail and fail at a higher level. Like It's almost like a staggering pyramid of like this failure was here, but your next failure is going to be way up here, and it's just going to build, and then at your highest feet of failure we're going to kick you out uh-huh. right and and that's a terrible way to look at it we need to and i've preached this at, at every level even as a, a as a uh basic lowest level tier airman uh, and now as an nco i preach it like hey i've had to interject recently uh where a guy is maybe not doing the best and just say hey guys just so you know 
if that individual is, you know, gets the exodus from the Air Force, it's a failure on us. Mm -hmm. It's a failure on me, you, and everyone in this yeah. room, right? And so that is the is essentially what extreme ownership is, yeah. right? We talk about, um, like, maybe fitness, right? If you have, there's elements in the book Extreme Ownership, uh, and exactly what you're talking about is this. It, it falls in line with this. Teaching the idea that discipline equals freedom. Mm -hmm. We as men, if we're disciplined, right, with fitness. Mm -hmm. If you're disciplined with your fitness, uh, you have the freedom to drink that beer, drink that scotch, yeah. you know. Uh, I got a you 90 know. today, so I'm enjoying that. That's what, <laughs> hey, that's what I'm talking about. You were disciplined, yeah. right? So you you have the freedom to, and you ran inside, right? I yeah. think I heard you speaking of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so for guys that aren't here in Clovis, we have... Uh, tornado level winds daily and uh, we can't run outside we have to run inside which is how 19 and three quarters laps 19 and three quarters laps yeah, so imagine pacing yourself for 35 second laps to get a mile and a half <laughs> yeah. for 19 and three quarters like oh that was 36 seconds i gotta speed it up oh that was 34 seconds i'm overexerting myself 19 and three quarter times yeah yeah it's really and i've ran inside myself mm -hmm. um and it does suck but if we're disciplined yeah. if we're, we often hear guys that say oh it's it's harder running it's harder. inside yeah it's still a mile and a half yeah it's still it's the same it's the same distance. to me it was the same back when i was uh I, i'm i've now left the role of uh physical training leader ptl whatever mm -hmm. whatever we call it um and you know fitness uh program manager UFPM. UFPM. I, I've, I've left those roles, but when I was filling that role and I was training our guys that were maybe stressed out about running inside versus outside, it's like, hey, it doesn't matter where we run. You know why? Because we run. Yeah. Right? And so we're disciplined in our fitness. We have the freedom to say, oh, it's 30 knot wins? Cool, let's run inside. Yeah. I'm going to make that my bitch. Yeah. Or okay. if we're disciplined with our finances, mm -hmm. right? We have the freedom to dr to buy that nice-ass truck outside, yeah. right? Or that, that bottle of scotch for a podcast. You have the freedom mm -hmm. because you've been disciplined in it. Yeah. Uh, and that's with every facet of life. Uh, you echo, and this is, this is exactly why I preach, Air Force PME, any sort of uh, Army PME, Navy PME, uh, Coast Guard PME. I don't know if they have their own PME if, or if it's naval. They do. Um, yeah. They they have their own. Yeah, they have their own. That's pretty sweet. But like all of those PMEs, they preach the same the same philosophy of extreme ownership. Yeah. Like if you mess up, it's your supervisor's fault. Ultimately, it ends up at the highest level, right? It ends up at chief of staff of the Air Force. If if his policies are impacting his uh, his airmen with a big A, if they're impacting his airmen, then it's going to impact his airmen, mm -hmm. and eventually it's going to make it down to that guy that maybe could have done a little better. Yeah. Maybe could have still been in the Air Force. Maybe could have, uh, even if it's the dude that's zipping up his, that his jacket's a little yeah. unzipped, all it takes is a little bit of leadership, a little bit of extreme ownership. That guy messes up, that's my problem. So um, I have two things. One story I want to tell about that guy that we were talking about that has since uh, became a civilian. Um, first introduction with him, I've been in the squadron for a day and a half. And I, don't, I think this is a cool story. I don't know if anybody else will, but um, it was one of the most like perfect responses I've ever had. I think, I think I've ever had. Um, and this guy was uh, in the commander's office and I was in there. The commander had never met me before. Um, and he was being issued his administrative demotion. He was going from senior airman to A1C. 
And it was a rough day for the airman, and I was there to support the airman. I don't care what he did. I don't care what he's going through. He's still a person, and he still has his feelings of what he's going through. Well, he gets read all of his information of what, what's going to happen and, and, you know, why and all that kind of stuff. And at the end, he has to sign. Well, he's in blues, and in blues, there's not really a good pocket for a pen. And also, he's distracted with other things, so he forgot to bring in a pen. So the commander says to him, uh, okay, well, this is the part where you have to sign. And the commander signs and has a pen in his hand. And he reaches down and realizes he forgot a pen and doesn't have a pen. And he says, uh, stands back at attention and says, uh, sir, may I borrow your pen to sign? And the commander, my first interaction with this commander, by the way, is, you don't have a pen and you're coming in here to sign your admin demote? Uh, no, sir, I don't have a pen. I had a pen on me. I handed it to him. And, you know, we got it signed and we moved out. And as we're walking down the hall, uh, this airman uh, looks at me and says, I'm sorry, sir, that was really embarrassing. I should have brought a pen. And the response that I had that for me is just, I will always remember it because it was so perfect. I turned to him and said, hey, buddy, no one wants to be good at getting admin demoted. I don't expect you to be good at that to remember to bring a pen. And that like lit a fire in him of, oh, wow, I, th I feel like this guy might care about me. You know, and that was one, and I don't have many, but that one I'll always remember is like, that's exactly how I feel like I should have responded to him in that situation. The commander was right. He should have had a pen and he commander did what he needed to do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time as this direct supervisor for that individual, worrying about him and his well-being and putting in a true perspective for him is, uh, to me, that was just a very fulfilling moment. Um, there was another thing I want to say about what you were wanting to say, but. I got distracted by that moment I had with, with that guy. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, we'll circle back to it. Um, yeah, the 51, 49%, I've been using that for years. Uh, I may have read it in a book. I read a lot, but I tend to forget where I read it. Just mm -hmm. things that stand out. It's like, oh, that was, that was interesting. Um, we were talking about failures too, and I want to circle back to that. Um, something that I've failed with a lot, and I feel like a lot of people can relate to, is along the lines of... Uh, when you're in charge of somebody that is difficult to get along with, not in that they're challenging or mainly it's a personality thing. That person is annoying. That person is frustrating. That person's likes and dislikes are completely anti-mine. Has been the biggest challenge as a supervisor to me to be able to, we have nothing in common. We don't have the same interest. Your personality drives me crazy. Trying to get past that, I still don't have the answer. And if you do, that would be amazing. But that's rough. That's that's a hard challenge to kind of figure out. Yeah. So I have a great example of this. Uh, there was so when I was in Afghanistan, um, I went there as an augmentee. I guess um, it was a conventional unit that I, w I went to. Um, you know, not many mm -hmm. of our guys go. Uh, to to that deployment, um, and they sent me as an instructor, and I think I was a pretty new instructor, and I went out with an evaluator pilot, and um, like I, we went out. It was just four of us, and we went out to augment this this unit that was a, a hodgepodge of a conventional unit, uh, obviously our AFSOC contingent, and then a couple contractors. Well, as the only instructor, and as the you know the AFSOC guy. I was in charge of everyone else, and uh, there was one individual in particular who, um, you know, I and personally, I went into it with like, okay, cool, I got 15 guys under me, some are conventional, 
Some are, and they're all A1Cs and senior airmen. Mm -hmm. I was a senior airman too, but I had the instructor call. Mm -hmm. So I was the big dick in town. <laughs> and uh, So one of them in particular, he was uh, the son of a chief. Uh, and, you know, he had a, a way about him that he knew everything. We were carbon copies of one another. And we just didn't get along. Mm -hmm. And every interaction we had with one another was negative, right? It, even in moments now that I look back and I think, man, all he wanted was someone to teach him. Mm -hmm. All he wanted, he didn't know because we came through the same pipeline up until I went to uh, the command that I'm in now. And then he went to his conventional command, right? Um, up until that point, we had the same amount of training, which was lack. It, it was lackadaisical. Um, so all this dude wanted was someone to teach him. Yeah. And in that moment, I crushed him. Like, I, I, I came in, I was like, hey, man, I'm just going to observe this flight. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get some instructor time, yada, yada, yada. And then during this flight in Afghanistan, I'm like, oh, well, what's this? What's this? Local area operations. Mm -hmm. Quizzed him on that. And, you know, quizzed him on weapon stuff. And I don't even think he was combat mission ready. I think mm -hmm. it was just basic aircraft qualification basic aircraft qualified um and it was it was after i left and i still feel bad uh for the it was in it was a solid two and a half months of every interaction we had was going to lead to a fist fight yeah. and uh it was after i left that i realized that you know employing that extreme ownership what could i have done better mm -hmm. with those people that i fundamentally disagree with right what box can i what box can i check with these individuals that will put me in a position to where I've won them over. You know, maybe it's with, if I'm working up the chain, maybe it's zipping that jacket up mm -hmm. to where it needs to be or getting that haircut or standing when they come in, whatever it may be. What, what stupid box that costs me nothing can I check with those guys? And working down is the hardest mm -hmm. because, you know, you're the... Yeah, you're in charge of 15 guys and, you know, we're in a, you know, we're in a war zone. You know, I'm the guy, right? Right. Working down is the hardest because pleasing your superiors super easy. I'll zip the jacket up, but if it's a you know, if if it's has to do with your job and this basic aircraft qualified dudes coming in and you've been in, you know, AFSOC for, at this point it was almost five years, uh, which in our community is an eternity. Mm -hmm. um, so like dealing working down, it's just maintaining that fifty one to forty nine. Mm -hmm. How can I take care of this guy? Yeah. Um, what box can I check with this dude that's lower than me or at my peer level that, that is going to get them off my back? Because they may not even be on your back. Yeah. Right? Oftentimes it's just, you know, maybe it's political. Maybe it's uh, just fundamentally as a man or a woman. Maybe it is <laughs> they like the Packers and you like the, <laughs> who's, who's the uh, – Who's the rival to the Packers? I have no idea. I don't, I don't follow football. I don't know. So they like the the Cowboys, and you like the uh, right. the Redskins, right. right? Maybe that's the fundamental disagreement you have, but always recognizing within yourself that you're leading them. Yeah. Even if they're above you, right? Yeah. You're, you're leading them, and adhering to that extreme ownership, that fifty-one percent, that every interaction you have. Uh, so Jordan Peterson, a philosopher, uh, he's a professor at Toronto University, I believe he speaks to this a little bit. Um, he says, with regards to children, never let them do anything that would make you despise them. Right? Yeah. I think that goes that way with airmen, with subordinates and peers. Never let them do anything that would mm -hmm. uh, make you despise them. Also, never let yourself do anything that would make them despise you. Yeah. 
figuring out what makes them quirk. And it's kind of manipulative, yeah. sure, but you're manipulating them into growth. Yeah. And yourself into growth, mm-hmm. you know? I've gotten better over the years. Um, that airman that I had at Lake and Heath, uh, we just had personality issues all yeah. up the chain, right? And that was my first realization that there's something that I'm doing, right? Uh, it happened again a couple of years later with a pseudo peer, mm-hmm. uh, same rank, but I was the person in charge. He was mm-hmm. the incoming person, but he was we were doing turnover for eight months. Um, and he and I just had different philosophical views in life and the pursuit of happiness. And our, our Maslow's hierarchy of needs self-actualization was a different yeah. picture, completely different, right? And uh, with with the current you know, situation I'm going through, I feel like I've learned from those situations to understand the 51, 49% rule. Obviously I use like crazy in this particular situation because mm-hmm. I used to say it and then I've, I've kind of not necessarily mastered it cause I'm always learning, but I've gotten better at it to the point to where I can realize she has her, that, that, that person has their interest. Right. Mm-hmm. And I can appreciate them as an individual and a person and understand that that's who they are and just work with their, find their talents and work with those you know I'm still not perfect at it and I still have days where I leave frustrated like why did you do that you know what I mean I would have done that completely different Mm -hmm. the result worked out to roughly the same but I would have done that differently you know and and that's important like just figuring out what makes people work Um, we so actually a little introduction to the app that we use you see the numbers have turned red on us we're limited to an hour uh, per part Okay. Uh, per recording, uh, when it's solely me recording, it doesn't recognize that there's two of us. So we're gonna take a quick break. I know I gotta piss super hard. Um, so we're gonna take a quick break, and then guys, we're gonna be back with. Uh, uh, I want to continue this a little bit uh, with what I tell my airmen and see if how we meld up, uh, and then we're gonna jump into uh, listener questions as well. If you're down with that, super excited. So guys, enjoy. Uh, I believe it's called West. It is a uh, piece of music that comes straight from the app. So we'll be right back with part two of volume four. Hey guys, and welcome back to part two of volume four, I think it is. We've had Davey, Knuckles, Jake. Yeah, volume four of Two Guys, One Closet. Uh, We had a short break. Uh, We chatted it up. We think the first half uh, came out splendid with regards to leadership, uh, development. and, And this applies not only to if you're in the military, but if you're in the business world, this applies. If you're in the contracting world, contracting with uh, reference to construction, right? If you're in the construction world, this applies. Uh, wherever you are, you have to lead your guys, your gals, your family, your children, and recognize that they're leading you as well. Um, so without further ado, we're going to jump back into it, get balls deep, back into leadership. Um, I think I'm going to kick it off with... Uh, a couple of things during our uh, ACAs or uh, Airman Comprehensive Assessment, right? Is that- yeah, feedback. But yeah, Airman Comprehensive Assessment is the Air Force nomenclature. Uh, but general feedback to your individual, whether you're at Dunder Mifflin or you're at, you know, Bob's Construction or, you know, big high-end, you know, S&P 500 company, you know, feedback of some variety is important. Yeah, it is. It's important to, if you're in the military, it's important to rank 
if you're in the business world, it's important a salary. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter where, I guess everywhere you go, it's important a salary because rank right, equals salary, more money. Yeah. Um, so a couple things that I give to every single one of my guys. Um, the, we talked about a couple. Uh, one is extreme ownership, right? Your failures are my failures. My failures are your failures and all the way up the, mm-hmm. up the chain of command. Uh, the second one we talked about was discipline equals freedom. That's what I give to all my guys. Uh, the third one is um, show respect in the face of your subordinates and peers and show courage in the face of your peers and superiors. Um, I can get into what that means. Uh, so here in, in our command, uh, I'll, I'll delve more into, we, we've hit on the respect in the face of your peers and subordinates, right? Um, even when guys fuck up and they lie about their insurance, uh, it's gin, right? Mm-hmm. I said Jan <laughs> for the first 40 minutes, and I'm sorry about yeah. that. Um, but so Jen, she showed you the respect mm-hmm. of... Uh, not only self-respect, but respect for you and like, hey man, I know you're lying. I'm not going to crush you. Uh, fess up. What's up? Right? Yeah. She showed you that kind of respect. So we hit that pretty hard. But the courage in the face of your superiors, right? What I mean by that, and peers and superiors, is the ability to say no. Right? Mm-hmm. Knock it off. Yeah. You know? Um, that is something I preach to my guys. Um, and not only just courage in the face of your superiors with regards to no courage in the face of your superiors with regards to yes Mm -hmm. like can you go today you've seen this in our unit um hey dude something happened can you get on a plane to x y or z country in three days uh we know which continent you're going to but we don't know which you know which deployment location you're going to right um you've seen that is that something that you think is effective and efficient or ineffective and inefficient um, so say if you say it the right way, and I have an example of this too, where I had to say no to a squadron commander, uh, and, and I basically had to put family before air force and one of our core values is service before self. But at times it's, you really can't put self before service anymore because once your, your personal life starts falling apart mm-hmm. and you're putting everything into the air force and all that kind of stuff, you be, you stop being effective in the air force because when your wife is leaving you, you're never seeing your kid, you have money problems and all this kind of stuff because you're sinking so much into the air force and you were so servicing before self you that only lasts so long before now your depression kicks in and you're drinking all the time because you're sad because you never see your kid and you have money issues because of the drinking that ties to that you you that you can only service before self so long so it was a particular situation where i was the squadron first sergeant uh and for those that aren't listening a first sergeant is in most companies, it would be related to HR, but it has a little bit more meaning and a little bit more power in the Air Force. Your general responsibility is to make sure that the people that work in the unit from all of the ranks are fed, watered, have money, you know, they're, they're being taken care of. They can focus on their job, so you're taking care of all of the other aspects. You also maintain standards and discipline and talking about uniforms and haircuts and all that kind of stuff. Normally, that is a secondary kind of focus. Uh, in my opinion, in my personal first sergeant philosophy, because I have significant experience as an additional duty. Um, uh, But while I was the first sergeant, I was approached by the uh, squadron commander and said, uh, hey, uh, I need you on a flight tomorrow to Italy. We had a member that got injured while they were out there, and they need somebody to be in the hospital with them because nobody else is with them. I mean, 
I would love an all-expense-paid trip to Italy, but I had just gotten back three days earlier from a two-month world tour going to multiple combat zones, multiple locations. Mm-hmm. I had been back for maybe four days, maybe four days when I was asked this. And um, I had to talk to my wife and say, you know, hey, how do you feel about this? And she was supportive and understanding, knowing what you needed to do. Her actual response was, well, I think they sell Louis Vuittons in Italy. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it is what it is, but I, you know, it's going to be rough. Uh, and, and at the moment, her tone in the situation was I'm supportive, but I'm not happy. Made me realize I might need to push this one off and tell the commander truthfully, Hey, I don't, I don't know if I can honestly take this in good faith and be productive in what I need to go do, where I need to go do it. Uh, so I don't think I'm a good fit for this, even though I was his first choice. And I could see that there was some kind of second guessing in that and a little thought of, but I, I also feel like he realized, because we had a relationship of you know, understanding and we had just gone on this world tour together where I, you know, he's like, okay, I, I get it, I'll find somebody else. If we found somebody else, it was a perfect fit for it as well. You know, but saying saying no in a proper setting when you when you can the other part of that um, where I have failed this in saying no too many times uh, or saying no improperly uh, is I had a leadership that was constantly trying to task my people for extra this and duties there and and this kind of stuff they had valid intentions of trying to set up my people because they could see I was looking for opportunities to set up my people for promotions and progression and experience and all that kind of stuff but there was also a limit of we can only add, we can only take on so much because we still have a day job to do. We still have primary duties to do. So I couldn't send Airman Bag of Donuts to go, you know, wash camels for a week for a volunteer opportunity while I had Airman Snuffy doing other stuff, you know, whatever other vol- playing soccer with kids, you know. I still had primary responsibilities that my team was in charge of. I, will, I was told in feedback in that situation that I say no too much and I lost my my voice, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, he's just always going to say no. So I think saying no is definitely, it's to leadership is a balance. Uh, if you're going to say no, you have to mean it and understand why you're saying no. Mm-hmm. Hey, I can't do it because I can't accomplish this mission that you're asking me to. Or if, if the no is I'm not doing that because I don't want to, you might need to readjust, reassess your you know priorities and what you're focused on and if your current spot is what you want. Um, yes, it goes in the same boat. You can't over yes stuff because if you're just going to be a yes man all the time, uh, you're going to also lose your voice because you're saying yes and then never fulfilling on all of those promises. Mm-hmm. So you got to, I think it just comes down to a significant balance of understanding your people, understanding where your people want to go and understanding your mission of what you need to do, whether that's selling paper or, you know, building computers, houses, whatever input, whatever industry you're in. You have to understand where your balance is. And as a leader, that's probably step number one of understanding who you're in charge of and understanding where your left and right balance are. If yes, we can take more and no, we can't take any more right now. And here's why. Yeah, man, that is. Uh, so you have uh, I've talked about Jocko a couple times, uh, but Jocko Willink, his second book with Leif Babin is called The Dichotomies of Leadership. Uh, and so the balance you speak of, there's a dichotomy there, right? You can say no, but if you say it too much, you lose your voice. You can say yes, but if you say it too much, you lose your voice. And I think you, you said it more per, like more 
perfectly, more professionally, and more soundly than I could uh, right now. And yeah, I think that you solidified and you uh, really hammered home what I mean, what I'm preaching to my guys when I say, you know, show courage in the face of your leaders and your peers, uh, show respect in the face of your peers and subordinates, you know. Um, heavy emphasis on respecting and showing courage in front of your peers because no matter what rank you are E1, 2, 3, 4 you are either leading amongst your peers or you're being led amongst your peers Mm -hmm. who amongst you when they speak does everybody get quiet even when it's just a bunch of E4s or E3s sitting around who amongst you has the strongest word Uh um I'll counter that what you just said with a um, reference to the great man theory from the early 1900s about different traits Mm. are derived more likely to be a leader of some variety. Mm. Charisma is one that comes up a lot. Do you think when there's a room of E4s or or low level, you know, people in an organization and you have that one person that has the significant charisma to be able to get a group's attention and, and talk about random uh, excuse me, sorry, um, and, and say what they want to say, whatever it is, their point and topic. Do you think it's charisma or do you think they have significant stock in that peer group or whatever group it is? Do you think it's a great man theory or do you think it's that individual? I, I think more personally it's on a, a individual basis, mm-hmm. right? Because in some areas, I am not a great man. In some areas... Maybe when I speak, others don't listen, right? Because if we're talking about cars, man, when I speak, you're not going to listen because it's going to be mostly like, uh, yeah, I don't even know how to change the oil. I, I've changed oil once, twice. I could figure it out if you had me try, right? I could change a tire, you know, do all that stuff. But I think it's it's a combination of, uh, so we have positional power and personal power. Yeah. And at that level, it's more personal. Of course. Right? And so it's dependent upon what you're speaking of. Mm -hmm. That's a hard question to answer uh, because leadership is a combination of being born with, and this is something that's evolved over my Air Force career, is I used to always think because I was the guy with the charisma. I was a born leader. You know, when I spoke, people shut up. When I spoke, people listened, right? Um, So over my Air Force career, I realized that's only going to carry me so far. Yeah. Um, so I think that leadership at its core level is at least 51%. <laughs> at least 51% learned. Yeah. Um, leaders are built, not born. Yeah. Uh, and that is something, if you asked me two years ago if leaders were built or born, I'd say born, totally born. <laughs> like, you, you know, I'm from the mountains of Appalachia, and I started working when I was 12 years old. I was pitching asphalt. What were you doing? Working at the Dairy Queen? Uh, you know, full disclosure, I worked at Dairy Queen too. Um, but, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things where there's again a dichotomy there. Yeah, and what my point about that is is for leaders out there that are listening to this and trying to figure out mm-hmm. the leadership thing, uh, is it, twofold. If you think you've mastered leadership and you know all there is to know, you're behind because yeah. you will never know every single situation, every right move to do. The other part of it is to just identify who in the crowd of your subordinates is the one that everybody listens to. Because you have to persuade that person to follow you. If you can persuade that one person as a follower, the rest will likely fall in line around that 
if quote unquote alpha, if, if you want to go mm -hmm. that direction to identify what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But if you can identify in your crowd of 50 people, 50 subordinates, some are even leaders of those other subordinates in that room, and you know which ones you need to persuade to be on your side, and which ones are just gonna kind of follow along, which you have four that are gonna follow along, four that are gonna, you have to persuade, and the rest will follow. You really only have to convince four out of 50 people you that's know. ALS in a nutshell. Yeah, that's ALS, one hundred percent in a nutshell. Yeah. You turn the 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 speaker of the house into your right hand man, and exactly. all of a sudden you're the president. Right you by know. by involving them in your decision, explaining why, and all that kind of stuff. I don't have to go individually to fifty individuals and get them to understand my philosophy of what I'm trying to drive this organization's direction into. Mm -hmm. There's four people that I need to convince four people that I need to understand their wants and needs and make sure that we're on the same page. So the, the so I think we, we hammer that home beautifully, mm -hmm. elegantly. Um, the last thing that I brief uh, to my guys during feedback sessions is the ultimate, like the all-encompassing. The capstone. Yeah, the capstone. We are a team. Yeah. Even if you forget your pin, when you're receiving an emotion, we're a team. I'm there. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We're going to fix it, right? Next time, you're not going to show up like that. But we're a team. In this moment, I'm not going to rip your ass. I'm not going to do anything like that. We're going to fix it, right? What is What is fixing it required? One, I'm not going to yell at you because mm -hmm. I'm only ever going to yell at you if you're killing yourself, killing someone else, or you can't hear me, mm -hmm. right? So we're a team. Uh, that's twofold. You know, when I slip up, Part of being a team is giving that feedback and not saying, "Hey, man, you're terrible." Blah 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 blah. Hey, dude, you're slowing down the team. You're, you know, you're the weakest link in the chain. Um, if you did this, this, and this, you could pick it up, and and you would be more effective as a leader amongst your peers and a follower to me. Right? You you drive the mission home. Uh, two way street. If I'm jacking up, you need to tell me. Yeah. Right. If I if I'm the weakest link. You need to tell me. If I'm the second weakest link, you need to tell me. If I'm not the strongest link in that train, you need to tell me. Yeah. Right? Um, and it, extreme ownership is tied in all of this, but um, that is the last thing that I drive home to my guys. That's how I end my ACAs is overall, we're a team. And whatever you need, I'm going to give you. As long as whatever your brother or sister needs, you're giving them. And even if you falter on that, right? It's wrong of me to say as long as, because even if you falter in giving your brother or sister exactly what they need, right? I'm still going to be there yeah. because we're a team. Yeah. And really hammering home that maybe your haircut's too long. Guess what? Don't want you kicked out. Why is your haircut too long? Cool. It's your form of rebellion? Great. Let's figure out a way to, to give you mentors that are that fit the... The, that fit the mold of what you imagine when you join the Air Force. Yeah. Who are the guys amongst you? Because professional, they exist everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, whether you're in a STS, Special Tactics Squadron, whether you're in a uh, operations unit, whether you're uh, supports that operations unit, amongst you absolutely are guys that stand tall, represent all of the core values, which uh, I have an issue with how people say, uh, some people say I'm too blue, mm. right? Um, and I counter that with, if being too blue is, say we're in godforsaken country X, Y, or Z, your survival chances in a, uh, if we're driving down a route, right, and 
<laughs> if if your chances are higher when I'm in that chances of survival are higher when I'm in that vehicle, if that makes me too blue, great. I'll be I'll be yeah, too blue. I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah. If during an indirect fire incident, so IDF, you've been mortared a shit ton of times. Um, if if I'm in a situation and your chances of sur- survival uh, are much higher when I'm in that when I'm in that mix, if that makes me too blue, cool. I'll be too blue. Mm-hmm. Like great. Like but that's how that's just the lay of the land. Yeah. Right. Um, the overarching thing though, it, it, like get, looking past the issues that I have. Looking past personal conflict, looking past discipline equals freedom, past uh, showing respect to your peers and subordinates and uh, courage in the face of your peers and your superiors, uh, the overarching theme is, and what wraps it all up, is we are a team. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else to add to that? Uh, no, I, I like the team concept. Uh, I actually um, I had a friend at Lake Neath that got into like making stickers. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I had them make was, and I had it above our door of our office that only we could see. You could see it from the inside, not the outside. It was a lowercase I with a little greater than sign um, and the all uppercase team. And it was uh, basically team is greater than I kind of concept, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I don't think my people really cared much about it. It was mainly more for me to remember that the team is greater than me. You know, when you have a group of people, it's greater than one individual. Uh, you go, the old saying of, you know, you go fast if you go alone or go further, go together, or something along those lines. I think, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's along those lines. Uh, and I use that still to this day in my in my section and wherever I'm working. You know, we're, we're a team. We're in this together. If, if somebody messed up of some variety, I don't care who individually messed up. I'd like to know so I can help them understand because people don't walk into work saying, man, I really want to fuck this up today. You know? <laughs> people, it's not yeah. human nature to just say that, right? So if somebody messes something up, they likely did it out of lack of knowing or attention to detail or they're overtasked with things, right? So as a team kind of concept, we messed this up. We need to remember how to effectively do whatever it is that we failed to do or something like that. Uh, yeah, so so I definitely do that. Um I add to my ACA, um, it's more a question posed for the airman. Uh, and I, again, I, this is probably I, my last time I'm allowed to mention Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but because that one hits so home to me, I want to know where that person envisions themselves. And I'm not talking the 5, 10, 20 year scope, because when you're talking to an 18 year old, or a 19-year-old, that's that's kind of a hard thing to envision, right? They're trying to figure out how to make it to 21. Yeah. You know, yeah. T- five years down the road, they're going to be old. 20 years down the road, I have no idea, right? So I pose the question of what it, what is the perfect picture of what you want to be when you're 50 years old and retired or 70-year-olds and retired? What does that kind of look like, right? Most of the time I get... You know, uh, you know, I'd I'd like to have enough to where you know I own a house and you know this kind of stuff. I'd like a family. Maybe you get some of those deep-seated questions that you get about what drives them in life, right? It helps them, and maybe they don't have that answer right then, and they walk away and they think about it, and that answer is going to change over a couple of years for sure. But the important thing you get out of that 
is if you have somebody that walks in at 19 years old and they say, I want to be Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force, the highest ranking enlisted person in the Air Force, or I want to be Chief Staff of the Air Force, the highest ranking military member in the Air Force. You know, oh, this person has big goals. I need to set them up for success. I need to train them right. I need to make sure that they have everything they need to. But if you get the pseudo unmotivated um, person, their envision of complete happiness is having a nine to five job where they show up every day, they crush their work, they have zero desire to lead anybody, they don't want to train anybody, they are happy making $40,000 a year for life, and man, they just eat that up and they just want to be the person that mops the floors, right? There are people out there that that is their complete epitome of I have made it, mm -hmm. right? I live in a van down the river <laughs> and I have fresh water and I see fishes and oh my God, this is amazing, right? Yeah. The problem you run into when you don't do that and I have... You notice a lot of my stories of things is things that I've failed at, mm -hmm. right? So this is another time where I have failed at this significantly. I would like to make chief. My goal is senior. Chief is ideal. Mm -hmm. Master is the minimum, right? I have that kind of broken out. Not everybody is like that. There are definite people out there that want to retire as E6. They want to get that, you know... $20,000 a year pension and they are set. Man, I have made it, right? So when you have that person that they are happy being a janitor and you're constantly feeding things that's trying to push them to chief, they start getting disgruntled and miserable. Why? I just want to come in and do my job. I don't want to do all this extra crap. Why is this asshat giving me all this kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted, I thought they wanted what I wanted and, mm -hmm. and there's no shame in what they want and there's no shame in what I want. But we're, it's different. It's a different path. You're not going to push somebody that has, that wants to be a janitor. Why aren't you going to college? I don't need college to be a janitor. Yeah. So why are you talking to me about college all the time? You literally have no idea what I want in life. So you start to discredit yourself as your leader and, and, and as their leader and their supervisor and the person that's in charge of them. This person doesn't get me at all. They have no idea what I want. You know what I mean? So that's that credit kind of thing. And that normally gets some good conversations going when you're giving feedback. And again, no matter where you're at, you know, if you work at Dunder Mifflin, you have a Dwight Schrute, and I use the office a lot because that's my go-to workout yeah. show. But, you know, if if you have a person that's a Dwight Schrute who's just totally happy, well, Dwight Schrute's not a good, you have a person that's totally happy being a paper salesman, and that's all they want to be. Kevin. Kevin. Kevin Malone, right? He's made it. He is where he wants to be. And you're constantly talking to him about assistant to the regional manager and, you know, <laughs> promoting him to giving him his own section and all that kind of stuff, yeah. right? He's not going to be interested in that. He's going to look at you like you're crazy. That's not me. Stop talking to me right now. I'm trying to do my job, you know? Mm -hmm. So so that's like you can I, – I give him the tools – 51-49% rule. You know, I talk about the team. I talk about the freedom that they can get. Master your job. Uh, the current um, uh, wing commander at the uh, at Nellis Air Force Base is a Brigadier General Rob Novotny. Uh, he was the wing commander at Lake, and he wrote a very interesting uh, article um, called Be the Wolf. The basic premise of it is uh, he was um, first-term airman center. Is uh, Every new airman has to go to it, and they sit in there, and they get briefings, and it's about a week long. Hey, welcome to the Air Force. It's kind of like a typical HR, welcome to the company kind of briefing. And they sit in there for a first week at their first base, and uh, they one of the days is they have lunch with the wing commander, the highest-ranking person at a base. 
And uh, one of the airmen posed a question to him, what do I need to do to make BTZ? And, and Colonel at the time, now General, kind of looked at him kind of funny. You've been in the Air Force for like six minutes, man. I'm not trying to discredit your motivation or downgrade you or anything like that. Your first task is to master your job. I don't give a rat's ass how many volunteer hours you've done, how many classes you're taking, what kind of benefits you're taking from the Air Force and all that kind of stuff. If you can't do the one job the Air Force has asked you to do, whether you're a sensor operator, an aviation resource manager, a crew chief, you name it. You know, If you're working at finance and you're volunteering all the time and you're taking classes, but you can't count to 10, I don't care how many classes or volunteer hours you've done. Not a given shit. So he kind of goes into that kind of stuff. And, and it's, it's true, though. So I talked to the airman about that. I use more political terms when I'm talking to a 19-year-old and say, mm -hmm. hey, volunteering is great, but you, you got a primary job here. Let's focus on that. So anyway, that's, that's my general feedback that I go to. I set the standard. You need to learn your job. Everything else will come. Everything else that you want in life, whatever that van down the river looks like, it'll come. But you have to master the number one thing first. Master the craft. That's right. That's it. Yeah, man. Uh, God, that was a beautiful culmination <laughs> to my feedbacks. <laughs> like, it's, um, I was, you know, I'm thinking now and I'm like, man, every airman that I have between now and separation, which is... Mm, 34 days. Of Who's day. counting, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, but it, I want to send this to everyone and say, hey, if you're thinking about even joining the Air Force, listen to this. Um, and, and speaking of getting people that are necessar not necessarily involved in uh, this community, in this service, or this military, let's jump into uh, Twitter questions. Sounds great. Yeah, Twitter I'm, questions. I'm pumped. I'm going to take a second and pull them up. Well, we do have uh, some pretty good Twitter questions that uh, that were submitted. Uh, this first question comes from Ian Lowell. Uh, this is at underscore I-A-N-J underscore. Uh, he asks, what is your favorite place deployed to so far? And if you could pick one to go to next, where would it be? Uh, my dad's been gone for 20 plus years or my dad's been in, rather, for 20-plus years, currently in Germany. Our favorite has definitely been Alaska, though. So not necessarily deployments as we know it, yeah. uh, like Afghanistan, Iraq, Af or Africa, yes, uh, deployments in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so my favorite, for various reasons, but my wife wouldn't appreciate it, was Korea. Um, I had a great time at Lake Neath. So my, my career track has been uh, Dias, which is in Abilene, Texas, uh, Korea, Lake and Heath, and Cannon. Uh, Lake and Heath in the UK, Cannon in New Mexico. Uh, Korea was an amazing time. So I didn't go to college. I joined at 17. I had to get emancipated to join the Air Force. Uh, but I went to Korea, and Korea was kind of the frat experience, at the same time learning it to master your craft. Uh, I had great leadership there. I had great opportunities. Uh, and, and in that time, we went to Alaska. Ian mentioned that it was one of his top favorites. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved Alaska while I was there. My wife came out and visited me. We were newlyweds while we were there. Uh, and uh, Korea was just a great time. I love the culture. I love the time there. 
Uh, favorite to go next is a little personal based off of where I'd like my family and I to go to. Uh, my wife is a Nebraska alum, University of Nebraska in Lincoln. So off it would be nice. She's uh, from San Antonio. I lived all over as a kid, so I don't really have like a home, quote unquote. Um, Herbert would be nice for me. These are Air Force bases, you know, so uh, I don't know if Ian's dad is Air Force, but you know, these bases would be nice for me. Um, professionally, I wouldn't mind a MAGCOM kind of position. Um, that would be that would be kind of nice, and, and and those bases have what I'm looking for: Randolph in San Antonio, Hurlburt, um, Offit, not so much, but at the same time, progression there uh, and good experience. The location would be ideal. So. Yeah, so Korea is weird, man. Uh, you have a uh, combat introduction, right? Because they're still doing all these exercises mm -hmm. where you're hitting Mop Four, and for guys that aren't in, you're hitting Kim Gear, which is basically. Uh, like the worst winter yeah. gear you can wear plus a, a face mask. mask. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you've been in the gym but you haven't been in the military, it's like wearing uh, one of those altitude... Altitude masks. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like you wearing know. an altitude mask and still doing your job. Yeah. Uh, so if typing you can imagine... With, typing with pencils and stuff. Yeah, if you can imagine being a bank teller and having to wear your winter weight clothes... Plus an altitude mask, that's exactly what Mop 4 might be. Yeah. Uh, so, Korea, you're getting like combat exercise yeah. plus juicy girls and yeah. all that stuff. So, so, I didn't go to the juicy bars while I was there, but uh, at the base that I was at, uh, it's not that everything was a drinking culture there, mm -hmm. but each unit had its own specialized kind of hooch, is what they're called there. And, you know, it's a squadron ran, self -provi provided for bar. You know, you walk in, you put twenty dollars on the on the table, and you drink all night. You know, um, sometimes chiefs will go in there and throw a hundred bucks, have a beer, and walk out. They're just funding the bar, so you can bar hop on base in a safe environment. You know, doing what you want to do. But the food was amazing. I discovered I love Korean food. Korean barbecue is just the bee's knees. Um, so, yeah, and it was it was a there were no families there, so my wife was still at Dias when I was in Korea. But the close-knit community that you have with your squadron of 30 humans, you know, and you get to hang out with them on the weekends. And that sounds terrible for some. Like, I work at, you know, wherever and at the bank teller. Imagine hanging out with your bank teller friends 24-7 for a year and your family stay wherever you're at. Some people might not find that appealing, but I was working in a fighter squadron with fighter pilots. You know, just a great bunch of dudes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely awesome people. So, Yeah. yeah. Korea is a good answer. I, th I feel like a lot of people, if they've ever been to Korea, would say Korea is probably their favorite place to be. Yeah. Whether it's personal growth, professional growth, um, you know, any facet. I, I had a friend who actually, um, it, not necessarily a friend, uh, an associate, I would call them now. I would call him a friend in high school who uh, went to Korea and decided he wanted to found a fitness uh you know, I, I haven't checked up on him, uh, but a fitness uh, company, I guess, is what you okay. call it. Um, yeah, he met a dude in Korea. Uh, if you're from uh, West Virginia, I think it's Jelani Burrell. He founded a fitness company. He just got fucking jacked. He was a fit guy in in high school, and this is happening years ago. Yeah. Uh, I just remembered this, talking about this. But Jelani Burrell, he joined the Air Force. Don't know what job he did. 
don't know how long he served or if he's still serving. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I remember him being in Korea and he found fitness yeah. and bodybuilding as his niche, as his yeah. thing. And so I think a lot of people would say Korea is their favorite place. And um, yeah, good answer to a good question. Uh, the next one we have is from uh, this guy doesn't have his actual name. Uh, it's Nine Lives, spelled, if you're a listener from Twitter, it's at N-E-I-N-L-I-V-E-S-3. So Nine Lives 3 says, where's the most money wasted and where's the money best spent on a soldier-by-soldier soldier basis? So airman-by-airman, airman, yeah. uh, whatever your experience is, experience is, where's the most money wasted per person? And where is it best spent per person? Um, this is a tough question. Um, and, and I'm going to kind of give a little bit of a political answer here. And I, and I apologize for this. Um, I would say that the best money spent is on any kind of people development. Mm -hmm. Whatever it might be. Any kind of opportunity to make your people better. The Air Force spends money on, on a lot of education and different trainings and stuff like that. Um, and and I, I think that's a great thing. Anytime you're... You know, building somebody for the next level, um, that's whether it's civilian or, or whatnot, uh, that's where money is spent well. Um, I think money can be wasted in various different assets. I think um, the way people are selected sometimes and the opportunities that they're given uh, might be a waste. Uh, that's that's hard to say though because there are all kinds of different reasonings of why people are selected for certain things, uh, and, and I'm not talking about promotions or anything like that. I'm talking about somebody selected for a particular opportunity or a particular upgrade mm -hmm. of some variety, right? I feel like that might be money wasted, you know, because um, you can kind of see, hey, I don't, I don't think that's really the best fit for that, but they're trying to give that person an opportunity because they like them. I don't know. We spend a lot of money on additional duties that you know feel unnecessary mm -hmm. but maybe somewhere up at a big strategic level gets input or valid feedback from that kind of thing uh like surveys i get inundated with surveys all the time i probably have 18 surveys a year yeah. and as a social psychology uh social science major i understand that surveys cost money they're research driven there's a lot of backstory behind it and all that kind of stuff so what they're getting out of these patient surveys at wherever wherever you know uh, I, I don't ever see the end result. I also know that you maybe get 13% feedback or input from a survey. So I don't know. Surveys is kind of wasted to me. Um, I see me doing these surveys and I never see actual responses. Uh, the Air Force has a um, Airman NCO Senior NCO Facebook group and they constantly post these surveys of you know, here's information about, you know, whatever, this survey that happened, you know, and you see it and you're like, wow, that's cool information. And then you never really see anything change from it. The government, the way it works is a slow moving system. And that's probably five years down the road of actually implementing information from that. But, you know, that's just Lane's opinion. So, yeah, yeah. The uh, five years down the road is a quarter of our career down the road, right? Um, it's It's a hard monster to deal with. Uh, and personally, I think that uh, the money that is uh, wasted is on exactly what you're talking about. So the surveys and uh, that aren't being capitalized on. If you have a survey that's capitalized on, 
Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Like if it's immediately inputted, uh, like maybe a deox survey. Uh, I forget what it stands for. I have no idea what it stands for. Uh, I couldn't tell you what it is. Like telling you, it's like an acronym that we use all the time. Yeah, it's like a climate assessment climate, survey, yeah. it, and it, it it's it's unit level. Yeah. It's brief to leadership. That is effective when actually briefed. Yeah. When when actually debriefed and actually addressed, uh, a climate assessment survey is good. Yeah. But these Air Force level ones. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, <laughs> shit. So. Um, where money is best spent, I agree with you as well. Is when you're developing your guys, mm-hmm. right? And if you're in a combat role in any way, shape, or form, like even if you deploy unarmed, and if something bad happens, dudes attack the base with AKs, right? And they're lobbing, you know, uh, HME homemade explosives over the Hesco barriers mm-hmm. at your FOB or air base or whatever. Wherever you may be, if we're investing in your combat training, we're investing in your ability to go to the base defense operations center and arm up. It's a good investment. Yeah, you know. So that's where money, I think, is best spent is developing a warrior culture, mm-hmm. especially in an air force where um, so many guys. I think it's you know, uh, it's maybe one percent. I think it's one percent sees any sort of uh, combat related duties. Um, especially in that Air Force where guys are, they deploy maybe to Iraq, I'm sure you saw this, but they deploy to Iraq, Afghanistan, and all of our other contingent locations all across the world uh, woefully unprepared because they think, oh, yeah, well, I never got training for this, so I'm never going to see this. And it's like, shit, man, you know, your embassy's been overrun. Now you're being attacked. What's up? Uh, I think any investment in developing a combat mindset within the Air Force is an investment worth making. Yeah. Uh, it, maybe it doesn't pay off in, in that individual's 20-year career. Maybe it doesn't pay off. But in their airmen's and their airmen's airmen's careers, maybe it does. Yeah. Right? And we've developed that that warrior mentality, you yeah. know? Um, but, but, but on to the next question. Uh, the, uh, the next one actually comes from my... Oh, first of all, thank you, Nonlabs3, uh, from Twitter. That's a uh, Twitter question. I don't know if you're on Twitter. Or... I'm not. Yeah, so Twitter is my favorite shit. <laughs> because I, we mostly do mixed martial arts podcasts on here. Um, I have a couple things in the works with the mixed martial arts community. Uh, we mostly dabble in that. So some of these questions, like the non-lives question, that comes from an MMA Twitter guy. So Nice. Uh, that responded via there the next one actually comes from my brother uh, which I think is a a question we've been addressing for nearly two hours now but one that I think needs some direct Direct uh, attention okay you know Uh, he says in the world of business attracting top talent is air quotes simple assuming the military operates under similar conditions how do you think you can help to retain top talent, especially with young young and hungry men or women who are always looking for the next opportunity? So um, the best answer that I can give to this is uh, the, the way people are is if you treat them well enough and train them well enough, you know, to where they can leave, but treat them good enough so that they stay. You know, um, 
it, it'll work out. Uh, the Air Force in recruiting try and pick the best talent, but they also pick in the needs of the Air Force. So we're not going to be able to fulfill that. Like a recruiter in Minneapolis to say, I need to find the next STS Special Tactics Squadron hero, you know, I need to find the next person that, you know, in Minneapolis, they're not going to be able to really filter that out. A lot of that's going to get flushed down in training. Uh, to retain those people, though, it, it entirely comes from the climate that you're going to create in the organization. You're going to create a climate of uh, supporting the people and making sure that the people have everything they need. And that's entirely coming from a first sergeant perspective of make sure they're watered, fed, cared for, all that kind of stuff. If you support the people well enough, they're more than likely going to stay. There will be the handful that aren't. They're just not going to. They're going to do their six and say, I just wanted to serve for six. I served my country. Now I want to move on with my life. They had that national debt that they feel like they had to pay. Uh, you're not going to save everybody. Uh, and, and the Air Force operates completely different than where your brother might work or where you know, any, any CEO of some variety trying to say, this is my top number one guy. How am I going to retain them? Uh, I, I think... For me, that question should be fairly simple to understand when you're in that situation. If I'm a top-level CEO at Apple, and I know that my number one guy, again, Bag of Donuts is always the hero, right? And Bag of Donuts is my number one guy, and I want to figure out how to keep him around. I should know him enough, or her enough, to be able to understand what they need to stay around. Because if they're my number one guy and I don't know them, obviously I don't really care that much about them sticking around. So people are going to leave, though, and talent is going to leave. But ideally, you have trained them well enough to leave, and you've treated them well enough so that they stay. There we go. Um, this reminds me, this question reminds me of a hypothetical scenario that was placed, I think it was maybe on Facebook, I don't know. Uh, but there's a CEO and there's a CFO, so a... Uh, Chief Executive Officer and a Chief Financial Officer. Chief Financial Officer. Uh, so two execs are sitting around and they're talking, and the CEO's like, "Man, what if we give all these guys this much training, right? And we we donate or we spend this money, we spend this time, and we train these guys, and then they leave, right? And the CFO, hearing this, he counters. He says. What if we do not dedicate the time, the money, the training to these individuals and they stay? Yeah. Right? And that that's what that question boils down to. Absolutely. Is is you just devote it, you you give that individualized uh leadership, you give that consideration, you always consider that we're a team. You teach them discipline equals freedom. You allow them the the responsibilities and the opportunities to grow. Um, you dedicate the time, you dedicate the training, you dedicate the money, and if they leave, they left well. Yeah. You if they stay, them. you reap what you sow. Yeah. You know? Um, I think you crush those. Do you have anything else to add to those? Uh, not to those particularly, but one last thing that I'd like to leave the podcast with today is uh, my personal leadership philosophy about how I pretty much go through day to day in every situation try and recalibrate myself every day as I drive to work and understand this and I read in a book once and I wish I could remember the book's name but you know it's it's the one thing out of this particular book that stuck with me uh, and it was a CEO that wrote the book and he's 
he was asked, hey, can you write this book about your experience as a leader and give us your input? I mean, I just kind of figured it out, right? You know, I don't know what I'm going to write a book on. But a couple weeks later, he's sitting at a wedding. And uh, it's one of his friends, his best friend for years and years, his daughter is getting married. So he's close enough to the front row. And um, he's sitting there and, you know, he can see, you know, people shuffling in and, and lining up. And this book is for some reason on his mind. And he sees the groom standing up there with all his grooms and as uh, as the um, bridesmaids and the and the best men and all them are kind of walking in and getting set up. And he sees that and it's a real pretty wedding, nice cathedral and whatnot. And in walks the bride and the music plays and everybody stands up and it's his best friend walking his only daughter down the aisle. And uh, they get all the way down to the end. Uh, and I get choked up a little bit every time the story I tell the story. It's kind of embarrassing. But he gets all the way at the end, and uh, this CEO is sitting close enough that he can hear this exchange. And uh, his best friend puts his daughter up on the stage, gives her a kiss on the cheek, and looks at the groom, shakes his hand, and says, Take care of my daughter. She's all I have. And she comes back down and sits down, and the CEO says, That's what leadership is. And I know it sounds weird, but what it is, is every individual that you'll ever supervise is a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a friend, a grandson, a granddaughter, any of those varieties. <clears throat> and their parent or whoever significant person is, has walked down them down the aisle, handed that person to your company, your organization, your air force and said, this is my only child. Take care of them. Right. And as supervisors, we are in that charge. The Air Force has given us that responsibility to say, take care of my daughter, take care of my son, right? So every person in our unit, I look at them that way, right? Um, and that's, that's how I get through the day. That's what I see every individual I interact with as. Somebody that has been, the Air Force has put me in charge of and said, take care of my daughter, take care of my son, take care of my grandson, my granddaughter, my friend, my brother, my sister. So that's that's what helps me. And Lane, that is what makes you the best goddamn leader <laughs> I have ever met. I truthfully, that. truthfully and honestly, um, I couldn't think of a better way to close out the the longest podcast <laughs> that we've ever done. So I win. You do win. <laughs> you have won this. Uh, for the listeners, you will be graced by Lane's presence again. Uh, next week, mm -hmm. if you're free, mm -hmm. next Wednesday. i got to check with the boss, but yeah. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, so next Wednesday, we're going to have Lane back on, and we're going to talk about, and this, mind you, this was decided halfway through this. This was uh, decided during the break that we had um, that he'll be back, and we're going to talk about what uh, truly led him here. So pre-enlistment, pre uh, growing up, right? We'll, we'll dabble a little bit in, in how I grew up, uh, how my brother grew up and how Lane grew up. And uh, it has been not only a pleasure, but an honor to have you on this podcast. And and something that, uh, if I can, I'll push to anybody that wants to join the Air Force. Uh, anybody that is in the Air Force, or in the military for that matter, to listen to and to take from. And uh, over uh, sitting in this room, we have... And nearly two decades worth of experience of, of, of leadership and followership more importantly mm -hmm. um, that have been put into these two hours so uh, 
I know I not only enjoyed it, but our listeners enjoyed it, and just thank you yeah. for being here. I really appreciate you having me on, and I really uh, appreciate the listeners uh, for this opportunity. So it's amazing, uh, guys. This has been overtly casual, volume four of Two Guys One Closet. Thanks for listening, and tune in this weekend for uh, Tyler and I back, and then next Wednesday for Lane in his second appearance to here. So uh, thank you all, truly, from the bottom of my heart. See ya!